You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 16. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we pick up the news along the highway of American culture. Dead old stinky news. Today, we're going to talk about tariffs. We're going to talk about trade wars. Thomas, what can you tell me about tariffs and trade wars? Uh, I know to take them seriously. So uh, the Civil War was sparked uh, between tension between the North and the South, and it was primarily over slavery, I've come to believe. I've been convinced by the Southerners themselves uh, who explained as such in their declarations of independence. But the other thing that exacerbated the tensions and really was the spark wasn't actually slavery because slavery had been going on for a long time in America. That's not why the South left. Um, exactly. You know, what did they bomb first? They bombed a tariff collecting fort. Fort Sumpner was for collecting tariffs. The new tariff regime that had been put in, put in particular pressure on the South. And that is what triggered, uh, that was the like pebble that started the avalanche. So it wasn't the avalanche. The avalanche was slavery and the election of Abraham Lincoln and the fears that what he was going to do. But the pebble that kicked it off was actually a tariff issue. And so, you know, you may think, oh, tariffs, it's just economics. You know, some prices may go up, some prices may go down. It's like, no, tariffs are a big deal. And they're one of the biggest things that can lead and can escalate into actual shooting wars. So the fact that we are starting a trade war is something that we shouldn't take lightly. Yeah, kind of a big deal tariffs. Uh, I am generally opposed to them. Um, as a student of economics, I, I firmly believe that uh, free trade and uninhibited, uh, uninhibited trade is generally best for everybody. Uh, a lot of, a lot of foundational concepts that I won't go, go, go into there. But uh, oh, let's let's no let's go into them. Let's oh, explain. you want to so, go into the foundational yeah. concepts of competitive trade right. and so and Dustin, do, do you ahead. grow your own food? Uh, as okay, not uh, not substantively. So, so why I not? do grow you my own food because it's incredibly get... expensive. Because uh, we do it as we do it as a family building experience. We do it because we get the joy out of it. We don't do it because it's economical. Uh, it right, costs cause... more for me to produce a squash than it does for me to buy one at a grocery store. And not only that, but it takes so much time, time that you could be spending doing something else. So the whole essence of civilization is that we as individuals specialize and we're and by specializing, we're able to be far more productive doing just the thing that we're specialized. So the blacksmith only does blacksmithing, the farming farmer only does farming. And when you scale this to a whole civilization, there's suddenly spare capacity to support people who aren't doing any particular good. Podcasters, I mean, for example. Podcasters, right. You know, <laughs> when they were like, you know, evacuating the city of all non-essential personnel, podcasters are the first to go, right? We are Probably. the least essential personnel, right? Your artists, your musicians. When you have a society struggling, you don't have people who have the luxury of being musicians. Everyone has to be a part of the food production, food protection process. And I know that's hard for us to imagine right now because we, by specializing, have gotten to the point where only like 2% of the population have anything to do with the food production process. So 98% of us are able to be something that's like artists, you know, in a medieval mind. Well, what works for the individual also works for the nation. So when a country 
gets really good at doing a thing and it specializes in that thing, it allows other countries to specialize in the things that they do well. And you know what? Not every country is good at doing everything. I know that that may offend some Americans that we have to be the best at everything, but you know what? We're really terrible at soccer. <laughs> we don't yes, do soccer we, very we well. We export most of our soccer. Yeah. And and that's okay, you know, oh, because oh, our other... we import it. I'm sorry, we right. import most of our soccer. I got and, that one. And that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. And, you know, um, American chocolate is good. And in South America, it's like considered a delicacy and they'll have it in big letters, American chocolate on the package. But in America, a lot of Americans actually prefer Swiss chocolate and Swiss wine. And that's okay, you know, to import your watches from Switzerland and export your, you know, software there. Like this is what creates human flourishing is lowering those trade barriers so that countries can specialize more and more on what they do well. And if you don't like what your country does well, you can help your country do better at something else. And it's evolving. It's not like you're shoehorned, right? We used to be the textile king of the world. We're not the textile king of the world. We got into other more interesting things for us as a nation. We got into cars. And after that, we got into technology. We're the leading provider of high technology uh, in the world. If you're wanting software or hardware designed, America is the number one place for that. We're also the number one place for entertainment. The entire world buys its entertainment from America when they're not busy pirating it. <laughs> so much easier to pirate it. Oh, so much easier. So that's economics in one lesson, uh, international economics in one lesson by Thomas Umstead Jr. If uh, I always recommend, Thomas, that uh, people who are not uh, economic freaks like you and I, they go to uh, Economics in One Lesson by uh, Hazlitt. It's an older book. It probably could use some updating. It's an older book, but the principles there are sound. It's completely readable, and it does a great job of making a case for uh, capitalism and free trade and you know drives the stuff from all from Adam Smith and uh, Keynes and all, all those all those greats uh, back back in our back in our uh, past and I will say that uh, we introduced the concept and the 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 technical term the economic technical term for all of what Thomas just said is called comparative advantage so one uh, country so the United States of America, might be really good at making uh, guns and butter. However, if it focuses all of its resources in making the one that it's better at and allows some other country to make uh, uh, something else. So, for example, we're really good at making guns. I like that case, by the way, because we are. And we allow, say, Mexico to make butter. We're still better off, even though we can make guns and butter than Mexico, based on the free trade principles and the, the math and the formulas and stuff like that. So it's always better to specialize in one thing and do that thing one thing really, really well, and then allow somebody else to do uh, specialize in one thing and do it really, really well, or you know, marginally less well than you, and then and then trade with them. Just that's the that's the rule of specialization, all the way from Adam Smith. That's right. Now, some people are very afraid. They're like, oh, well, the fact that we have a trade imbalance, which you're almost always going to have trade imbalances, it's almost impossible to have a trade balance, uh, especially with all countries. I, I don't know if that's ever doable. But it's like me like, eating oh. a balanced diet. Ha! <laughs> yeah. So you're like, oh, we have a trade imbalance with China that gives them control over us. And I would like to just give you some facts to help put you at ease with regard to that. So while, yes, we do import more from China than we export in terms of dollars, we don't do that in terms of 
calories. So one thing that's important to understand is what does America do better than every other country? You know, I mentioned a couple of uh, items before, but our big export, our primary export to the entire world is agricultural products. We have the most fertile fields and the most educated farmers. So in most of the world or in a lot of the world, farmers are not particularly educated. They're often very poor and they don't know how to get the most utility out of an acre of land. And farmers in the United States go to universities like Texas A&M, or as Woo! I like to call it, University of Texas at A&M. <laughs> and um, we're going to we're going to learn that part out. <laughs> they learn how to, you know, maximize. I mean, you go to four years of school on farming, you're going to be a really good farmer. And not only that, but these universities are doing experiments and studies. My mom went to school at the University of Illinois, and they have the oldest experimental cornfield in the United in the Western Hemisphere. And this cornfield has been running for. Uh, decades and maybe over a hundred years and they're constantly doing experiments on how to make corn more productive. And that gives us a huge comparative advantage over China. So China imports food from us, Europe imports food from us, and they can't just turn that off. And it's very interesting because even when we get into trade wars with countries, we often don't keep them from being able to import our agriculture. And part of this is because the lobby of the farmers is so strong. There's really no way to win on that and two like they the country really needs it so like cuba we had an embargo on them except we didn't for food even during the height of you know george w bush as president we're still trading billions of dollars of food to cuba cuba like communist countries are terrible at feeding themselves historically like that is just a problem communist countries have had it's a problem we had when we experimented with communism in the united states before we were the united states the pilgrims had a proto version of communism and they were starving then they switched to capitalism and they stopped starving the very next year like communism yeah, is just really yeah it's just really bad for farmers which is really ironic because they have a sickle in their flag and it's yet it's uh that is like what they sabotage and this is like a truism 100 years you look at a communist country after communist country and you see lots of starving people and we have kept those people alive by selling them cheap grain from kansas because kansas farmers are really good at their jobs so i want to make a couple points that are very important points um, that you just hit on, Thomas. One is that you said that communists, Marxists, socialists, whatever you want to call them, are bad at farming. And uh, in the hammer and the signal, sickle, excuse me, the hammer and the sickle, uh, the sickle being the uh, the tool uh, back in the early part of the century, in the, in the 19th century, that was used to uh, harvest grains uh, instead of you know the big tractors that we have today. Um, the hammer and the sickle was developed in order to co-opt the peasantry into the Bolshevik Revolution because the, the, the quote-unquote proletariat, which is supposed to be made up of factory workers, um, there just weren't many proletariat in Russia. It was almost entirely peasants. So these intellectual proletariat knew in order to co-opt the peasants, they had to you know bring them into the fold. Hey, yeah, you're one of us, even though your you're farmer's not really one of us, but you're one of us because you're poor too. So that's how they brought them in. That's how they seduced them. Uh, and then promptly after seducing them, and you had the uh, dictatorship of the proletariat, they they almost immediately went to starving them to death. So 1932, 1933, in Ukraine, uh, Joseph Stalin actually used starvation as a tool for subjugating Ukrainian farmers. And uh, the, it's, it's a, it's, it's a tra you think the Holocaust is tragic? This is just as tragic, if not more, 
Uh, you had 7 million Ukrainians, men, women, and children, uh, starved to death in the countryside, produced all the grain, and all the grain was taken by the Soviet government and was exported to the West. Every last piece of grain. So the Ukrainian farmers would go out to the fields and they would, after the harvest was done and all the grain was sent away, trucked to the cities to be exported, they would go out into the fields and they would pick whatever they could out of the fields and the Bolshevik government got wind of this and they made that illegal. And you, if the, if the um, remnants of the, 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 the harvest were uh, harvested by the peasants in order to eat, they made that illegal and the punishment was death, immediate, immediate execution by, by bullet. And that caused the death of starva- by starvation in one winter of over 7 million of the population. So, yes, socialism is not only vindictively bad uh, in the case of Ukraine, but it's also just bad at managing uh, uh, farms to begin with. And you made another excellent point in the fact that our farmers in the United States are supremely educated. Uh, I know a couple farmers. Uh, obviously, I live in a, in a rural area, and from high school, and, and just uh, just talking with them, and I can tell you, they've all been to university. They all understand business. They understand economics, and they're and they they under, not only that they they can fix a truck. They understand their mechanics. Uh, they they um they are botanists. They are chemists. They understand the chemistry of how you know the fertilizers and all the stuff that they use. Um, interacts with their with their plant, or in the case of ranchers, with their animals. So they are extremely educated, and I can't remember the exact statistic, but I want to say three percent, some some single dig, digit percentage of the population that have an occupation of agriculture feed not only the United States but a good portion of the world, and it's absolutely incredible. Uh, I. I have a man crush on the on the on, on the occupation of agriculture, uh, and I dabble in it myself. But it's absolutely incredible how much knowledge goes into farming, uh, and how much knowledge is needed to be a farmer. And to bring it back and to not, tariffs, to bring it back. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Thomas. To bring it back no, no, to tariffs, ahead. the downside of the tariffs, and I fully believe that that uh, President Trump is using these tariffs and the threat of a trade war. In a big game of chicken with the international community, and I don't know how he's going to survive it, because a big portion of his electorate is the rural Midwest, the rural South, and a big portion of that, they're either uh, are farmers or they know farmers, and they're affected by the agriculture industry in one way or the other, and they are going to be the ones that suffer the most. For example. Uh, I read a story uh, just yesterday about uh, Mexico's retaliation of tariffs uh, against our dairy industry, especially the cheese industry in Wisconsin, and they are already suffering uh, a big drop, not only in profits, but in orders and in future orders, and you never know if you can get that business back once it's gone. So. It's, My wife was a, just reading on on Twitter that our yeah, stocks of cheese yeah. are higher than they've ever been before. Like we have like I think four pounds of cheese in storage in the United States right now for every man, woman, and child in the United States. So we're talking about billions of pounds of cheese just in storage because it's not able to sell and because we're producing more. It's not just because demand is down and domestic demand is down, but it's also Which because. It is. 
we're getting more efficient at making cheese because yes. it's not just the education. It's also, oh, by the way, the technology, right? It yep. used to be a, a, a farmer riding his tractor and it's like, man, what an amazing technology. Now it's a farmer with drones and an iPad and self-driving tractors. And he's got a whole army of robots that are harvesting. And, you know, like the level of technology and how it's affecting farming is just like blowing up right now. Because like self-driving cars are very scary on a highway for a lot of people, but no one's particularly scared by a self-driving tractor in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, that makes a big difference, you know, for the guy riding the tractor. Yeah. And then you can actually employ multiple tractors, you know, one person uh, instead of hiring tractor drivers and, you know, the assistants and et cetera, they, one person can now control multiple enormous, I mean, I'm talking about enormous uh, harvesting machines and it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, but back to, back to free trade. So the reason we're talking about this is that there's been another round of escalations where uh, we are putting, um, you know, billions of dollars of tariffs on specific Chinese products and they are retaliating by putting on billions of dollars of tariffs on our products. And what this is effectively doing is throwing sands, sand in the gears of business and it's affecting businesses very disproportionately. So if you are a company that relies on aluminum, uh, like I was, I was reading Reddit and there was a, a thread of like, how have you personally been affected by the tariffs? And it was people in the industries that are affected. And one of them was a microbrewery and they, you know, brewed beer and they were about to buy a $200,000 machine that was going to make their brewery more efficient, more effective. So they could produce more beer and they had to cancel the order for this machine because aluminum went up by five or 10%. And that affected how much they had to pay for their aluminum cans, which if you're a beer brewery is a big deal, right? You're going to spend a lot of money on aluminum because you buy a lot of aluminum cans. And, uh, you know, that's a harm because they would be able to produce more and have made more jobs, made more micro brew, help bring better beer to America. And now uh, that's not happening. And you're seeing that in all kinds of different industries, because what we're buying, you know, at least with the steel and aluminum tariffs, which is, I think, two or three battles ago in terms of the trade war. Those are constituent parts. The only reason we would buy steel and aluminum, like people don't put like blocks of steel in their house, right? You use steel to make something else that's more valuable. So who's going to get hurt by buying cheap steel and aluminum? It's manufacturing. <laughs> the very thing that Trump is claiming to try to save is actually getting hurt. And I, I, I say this every time we talk about free trade, and I want to say it again now. No one agrees with Trump who will ever be the next president. There's no other Republicans who think that this is a good idea that are presidential contenders that I know of. And there's no Democrats who think that this is a good idea that are presidential contenders. So this trade war will only last for Trump's lifetime. Like, or in, and by lifetime, I mean like his life in office. Yeah. His presidency. Yeah. Uh, so this isn't, I, I don't see this as an existential threat to free trade, although he has a lot of ability to break down those institutions in the next six years. Well, and the, the interesting thing is he's already, I mean, you want to talk about throwing a wrench into the international economy. He has started a trade war with the entire world. And uh, as you were talking, Thomas, I was, I was perusing this article, trying to uh, get a quote ready. And one of the headlines in the article, this is from the South China Morning Post, says, China fears that Europe will, quote, stab it in the back, end quote, in the U.S. trade conflict. So Donald Trump has started a trade conflict with every country that does business with the United States. By the way, the United States is the best customer for every country in the world. Well, I won't say that's, that's, that's a generalization, but it is the best cu 
customer for most of the big producers in the world. I mean, the United States, as far as I know, is still the big, biggest uh, purchaser of, of goods in the world. So these these countries, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, every, every, there's all this rhetoric aimed at Donald Trump, but these countries have also got to be got to be eyeing each other suspiciously because I think, and this is where part of me is like, man, this could either, it's either going to go really, really well and it's going to work perfectly for Donald Trump as, as he's estimating, or it's going to go really, really poorly. If it goes really, really well, I think what he's, what he's kind of going through the economic game theory here, and he's saying, who's going to fold first? Who is going to say, okay, I, 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 I cry uncle. This hurts too much. Uh, I'm going to give you what you want, Donald Trump, which is free trade across the board, which I believe, and I, I based on some conversations that uh, happened that were highly publicized at the G7 uh, meeting a few weeks ago, I believe that free trade across the board is his ultimate goal. Um, I don't think he's stating that right now because I think he's playing a hardball game, but I think that's his stated goal. And the first country, or in the case of the European Union, the first group of countries that says uncle... I think is going to pave the way for all the other countries to to fold down like like a stack of dominoes. So the other option is is that Donald Trump can't survive this move politically, although he still has two and a half years left in office. Can't survive this move politically, and uh, you know it it he runs out of time because time for any U.S. president is against them, whereas China. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Chinese premier doesn't worry about time. Uh, the Chinese government doesn't worry about time. You know, the North Korean government, you know, Kim Jong-un doesn't worry about time. But it's time is very much an enemy of Donald Trump and any U.S. president. So it's going to be inter- interesting to see how it plays out and to see once once the business uh, world really starts to feel the effects of the tariffs. And that's that's Donald Trump's one of his biggest uh, bait, uh, you know, uh, basis of strength in the nation, whether they're going to allow him to get away with these tariffs for the time that it's needed to, to take effect. And you may be like, but I thought we already had free trade. We have a North American free trade agreement. And while it's called the free trade agreement, it's not true free trade. True free trade is what we have between Texas and Oklahoma, where when you cross in Oklahoma to sell your products, there are no tariffs on any products whatsoever. And we don't have that with any other country that I know of. Um, we have that on certain products. So when you sell Ecuadorian roses in the United States, there are no tariffs at all uh, because we want to encourage Ecuador to grow roses rather than cocaine. They grow in the same fields in the mountains. And so we're like, you know what? We're going to make it as easy for you as possible to sell your roses here. Uh, but in general, we don't have true free trade. And if we had, you know, across the board free trade, that would be amazing. I I don't know if that's what Trump really wants based off of his rhetoric for the last 20 years. So when he was on Oprah in 1991, he was railing against China and he wasn't advocating for free trade. He was advocating for protectionism. And I will say free trade in the short term does create losers. If you are in an industry in the United States where you're competing against a foreign country that has a competitive advantage over you, and you're losing, that is really awful. And that that's no fun. And losing your job is no fun. Well, it may be good in the long run for the country. That doesn't make it any better for you and your family now that you're out of work. And I think that that is that pain that some Americans are feeling is a very real 
pain. And it's very easy for economists to be like, well, in the long run, it's better for everyone, right? You know, it's a good thing that the loom put all of the, you know, people who spun cotton or wool by hand out of business because now, you know, clothes are so much cheaper. It's like, yes, that's true. You know, now that they're all dead, we're definitely benefited off, right? That was 200 years ago. But that didn't mean that it wasn't really painful for them. And it didn't like disrupt families and force people to move. And I don't know like what the good solution is for helping people who are displaced, right? Because it is good for the whole that we move to a more efficient economy. A more efficient economy creates more wealth for everyone. You know, we are all better off now than we were 200 years ago. There are fewer people dying of starvation uh, in the United States than 200 years ago. And we have better nutrition. We live longer. All of those benefits. But that uh, when the costs are focused on a handful of people, it's very easy for those handful of people to say, hey, look at us. We're hurting. And this didn't just happen with Trump. It also happened with Obama. So Obama, uh, one of his big things that uh, he broke with free trade was over tires. Uh, so tire workers, there's like 600 in a factory and they were losing their jobs because China was able to make tires cheaper. And Obama swooped in and put in some big tariffs and saved those 600 people's jobs. And it cost America a billion extra dollars in tire costs. So you'll notice tires are now super more expensive and poor people are renting tires now <laughs> instead of buying them and having their tires repossessed on their cars. And it's actually, you know, the cost of helping those 600 people was way out of proportion. You divide 600 people by a billion dollars, you're talking about like a million dollars plus per person per job. That's not an efficient way of saving jobs. We could have spent that money in much better ways uh, in the economy. And so it, I don't know exactly what the solution is. Uh, I don't want to propose some sort of like socialistic, oh, you get some sort of severance or something uh, from the government. But I do think it's something that we should explore or at least talk about uh, because if you have too many of these people pile up, they become a political voice against the free trade system as a whole. And I think that is a really harmful, scary thing. You're absolutely right. Um, there's a couple great quotes by Alfred Boehner Keynes, great economist from the early part of the century. Uh, in the long run, we're all dead, right? Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, the long run. I'm not a fan a of Keynes, in- by the way. I, I think <laughs> well, that that guy was far too most- focused on the short term. He's like a drunken, yeah, well- binging party boy who's like, oh, who cares about tomorrow? Just enjoy today. Carpe diem. Most of your uh, most of your purists, your free trade purist, your your capitalist purist, are not going to be a fan a fan of Keynes because he was a proponent of government intervention to manipulate the economy to achieve certain ends. And that's, you know, the, the, the big result of all of our New Deal programs back in the 30s, you know, that was inspired by Keynes. And so people call it socialism. Uh, it's not really socialism because socialism, economic theory, wherein the state owns the means of production. The state never owned the means of production. Keynes's idea was to goose uh, production and to goose the economy by using the state's power to tax, to tax more and to to, to try to manipulate those revenues to, to goose the part of the economy. Now, you know, we can definitely argue back and forth of, of, of whether uh, the, the government is any good at using its uh, funds to actually goose the economy. Generally, I'd say it's pretty terrible. But I think there's an argument to be made where to say, you know, it, it's, it's okay to, to focus your funds in a specific area. Um, I think it's, it's generally a bad idea, but in, in certain circumstances, I think it's okay. Anyway, I think we're getting across, away from the main topic of, you know, the long run, we're all dead, right? 
But I think, you know, the reason that Kane said that is to address the same problem, Thomas, that, that you stated is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, yes, competitive advantage is good. In the economic theory, this is all good. The problem is, is when the rubber meets the road of, you know, the individual is hurting, you know, how do we solve that problem? Because as a nation, we are a nation of individuals and the United States is, as a political system, believes in the individual above all others. Or excuse me, not above all others, the individual above the state. The individual first and the state comes second to serve the individual, right? Um, whereas in, say, uh, uh, China now, which really it's not even a communist system anymore. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a weird combination of state-run, it's almost fascist in a way, because now it's uh, state-run capitalism. It's it's been an interesting transition, but you know their culture is uh, you know it's it's it, this comes from their from the very earliest part of Chinese culture is the the group comes before the individual. So you have this dichotomy in the way people think. Well, United States, just like you said, when when the individual starts getting hurt and that starts going on the news, uh, that's when people start caring, and you know. Is there a great solution? Was the solution to protect 600 jobs to make, you know, everybody else poor? I don't think that's a great solution. Um, but maybe, maybe to bring it back to present day in an environment where, you know, we have reached full employment to the point where there is actually an employment or there's a labor shortage out there. Maybe now, and maybe he's taking this into effect. Maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe now is the best time. To have some sort of trade war where you know the, the there's such a labor shortage anyway that there's going to be more labor mobility. Now, that's the economic theory, kind of a perverted in, in, in a perverted sense, but um, because you know labor is really not mobile anyway, even though that there's a shortage, and uh, you know the economic theory would say that uh, rate, wages would rise in a period of, of uh, labor shortage. But they aren't really rising substantially either. So maybe it's just taking more time. I don't know. I guess the point I'm trying to get to, Thomas, is you're right. There really is no good solution. But I think a bad solution is um, I think the, the, the a bad solution is to have a long term trade war. If it is a tool that whose ultimate objective is absolute free trade, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of using that as a negotiating tactic. Uh, but I think in the long run. The, the the trade war that's being is that trade war that's being pushed forth right now through the institution of uh, tariffs is a really is a really bad idea, and I think it ultimately could lead actually to physical hostility if it goes too far, and I think that's probably the most dangerous part of it. I will say, in some ways, we are well positioned in in the sense that. We have a lot of freedoms in America that we take for granted that allow us to handle economic shifts better than most. So let's compare the United States with the European Union. Uh, if you are, let's say, a factory worker in Michigan, and you're, fact and you're a part of the union, you've got a great paying job, and your union demands so much money, it put your car company out of business or forced them to move, and you've got to get a new job somewhere else, and you have to leave Michigan, you can leave Michigan without asking anyone's permission. And you can move anywhere in the country without asking any permission, you don't have to register with the government. And once you get there, the laws are very similar and the language is the same. You could move from one end of the continent to the other end of the continent without the laws changing in a major way and without you having to learn another language. Now, imagine 
you're doing the same thing in the European Union. The laws are similar because they have a single legal structure, but you have to live in a completely different language. So if you're Polish and suddenly you're wanting to move to France because France is better at industries that are, you know, needing more workers, well, now you got to learn French. And that's a huge amount of friction. Like the fact that we've got all got to the same language for this continent has given us a huge competitive advantage. Or let's say China. China does not allow the free movement of people in their country. If you're in one province and you want to move to another province, there are um, barriers that you have to deal with. If you're wealthy, you can do it no problem. If you're poor um, and you move to a city, you don't have the same rights as somebody who is supposed to be in that city. And um, and so it's harder for them to move people around the country uh, and to adapt to a changing situation. And we've seen that, right? We were able to recover really well from the Dust Bowl in the 1930s. We had this terrible drought and terrible agricultural practices uh, and, you know, caused whole states to have crop failures um, year after year. And you know what? People were able to get up in their Model T and drive to California where they were not having those problems. California was not having a drought. And those people who moved, while well, the move was a you know, traumatic time, their families prospered in the long run, right? California had a great run from the 1930s to today. California has had unbelievable growth decade over decade. And you know what? Oklahoma's doing fine too. You know, Oklahoma was able to recover and was able to bounce back and people were able to position their lives and get to a place where they were stable. And that is a great advantage that we have. Uh, and let's compare to South America, say you're in Ecuador you know, you um, could move to Colombia next door. It's the same language, but you can't because suddenly that's immigration. You have to deal with immigrating to another country and there's huge friction to moving from one country to another country. And and so you don't, while the language is the same, the laws aren't the same. So we have the perfect combination of the same laws and the same language, uh, whereas Europe and South America uh, don't have those things or Africa. Africa is the worst because not only do you don't have the same language, you also don't have the same laws. So moving from African country to African country is unbelievably uh, difficult. And there's, you know, different religions. And if your religion's not favored by the local religion, maybe you'll be, you know, killed or, you know, persecuted. Uh, and, and you'll notice yeah, if, if you, you know, death is kind of an obstacle to mobility. Yeah. It was, it's a big obstacle. And you have people in Africa right now, uh, millions of people who are trying to move and a lot of them are dying. Like it's an unbelievably dangerous act to move from the place you are where the economy is failing to a place where the economy is thriving. Um, I was just hearing that, you know, millions of people are dying in the Sahara Desert trying to cross it on foot. And it's like, don't do that. <laughs> like, it's, like you got to be really desperate where you are finding your place yourself in the Sahara Desert on foot. That is a really scary place to be. So um, we are well positioned to handle this trade war. Uh, so I don't think we need to panic per se, but I think that it's um, if if our goal with the trade war is more protectionism, more tariffs, more tariffs, uh, I think that that's going to really hurt us. Uh, but not in the long run, because the next president can undo it all with a stroke of a pen. Yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch one way or the other. Um, yeah, I. I I don't have a whole lot more to say on it, Thomas, and I think we're running. Uh, we're, I think we're running into a time constraint of our own, just like the president of the United States. So, uh, <laughs> I think we should wrap it up there. We want to know what you think. So, uh, you know, drop us a line, email, shoot us a text if you know us, because yeah, I'm not giving my phone number out to anybody I don't know. Sorry. And uh, yeah, we want to know what you think. Let us know, and uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. <laughs>